If you want to keep Esther 1 open in front of you, that would be great. Now, those of us who have been coming to Malden Road for a while now will know that a few weeks ago we finished a sermon series on Romans chapter 8. And one of the key verses in that chapter is Romans 8, verse 28. Let's read that for us. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we spent some of the time thinking through what that means for us. And personally, I was struck by just how reluctant I've often been to think about that verse or to encourage other people through it. I guess in some ways I've seen that particular verse used very insensitively sometimes. Maybe people who've suffered a great loss or people who are suffering from depression, they say, oh, don't worry, God is working for good. It can be used insensitively. So I may have been scared off from using it myself. But just because that verse has been maybe mishandled in the past doesn't make it any less true. So perhaps my problem has been that I don't always believe it. I don't always believe that God does work for the good of those who love him in absolutely everything. And that was a real challenge to me. I was struck that this verse, this idea, is right the way through God's word. And therefore it is true, it can be trusted. And yet I have struggled to believe it in my own life. And I think many Christians can struggle to believe that that is true, that God is working for good in every circumstance. So I I ask myself, why is that so hard to believe sometimes? Why is it so hard to trust that God is working for good? And I think that one answer to that question is because we don't always know what God is doing in our lives. We can't always see God at work in our lives. So it can be hard to believe that he is at work for good or otherwise. We can't see God. It's it's sort of obvious, but it can make it difficult to trust him. We can't see God. And that means it can be frightening making big decisions about our lives. We can feel uncertain that a particular course of action is the right one. We genuinely don't know what God wants us to say in a particular situation or to a particular person. We can't see God. And therefore there will be times in our Christian lives when that will make it difficult to trust him. I think that is where we can be really encouraged by the book of Esther in the Old Testament. I don't know how well you know this book. It's a favourite of Sunday school teachers because it is a great story. I'd encourage you to have a read of it maybe in the coming week and just get a real sense of how the story hangs together. But often it's a neglected book for adults to look at. And I think that's a shame because I think the book of Esther can encourage us when we feel frustrated in our lives that we don't always see God at work. When we feel discouraged or we don't know genuinely what God wants us to do with our lives. See, this book can encourage us because it's a book that describes a world where God is completely invisible. See, perhaps the most famous thing about this book of Esther is it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God once. Again, sort of, do you have a look through the book? There is not one mention of God in the book of Esther. And that's probably what's led a lot of Christian commentators over the years to neglect it. See, reading Esther 
our first impressions might be that it's very little to say to Christians and very little to say to Christians living today in the 21st century. And I wouldn't blame you if that was your feeling when I read out Esther chapter 1 there. At a moment, lots of long words, amazing detail, but what's it got to mean and say to us? But I want to suggest to you that this book of Esther has a great deal to say to us precisely because God is invisible throughout. So we've entitled this series, Trusting the Invisible God. And that's what Christians are called to do every day of our lives. Now let's be clear about that. It's not a blind trust for Christians. One of the wonderful things about the Christian faith is that it's so verifiable. We can see that actually it's based on historical facts. Again, recently there's been a lot of controversy about the Da Vinci Code, the the book and the film. And it's challenges saying, well, can we really believe what the Bible tells us about Jesus? As I looked into the Gospel accounts, again, I just was greatly encouraged over and over again that the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life are trustworthy. We know that these things were recorded for us so that we can know that Jesus is real. We can know that he's able to forgive us. So again, our faith isn't a blind one. We need to be really clear about that. But all the same, in our day-to-day lives, Christians are called to trust in God through Jesus. And we can't always see God at work. We have to make decisions every day not knowing exactly what God wants us to do. At different stages in our lives, this can express itself in different ways. When people are teenagers, they think, well, what do I do after school? Should I go to university? Should I get a job? Where should I live? Later on, people maybe leave university. We've already been thinking about today. The questions become, well, what job should I do? Should I get married? If so, who to? Again, where should I live? And then we have questions about our families later in life. Will my baby arrive safely and healthy? Will my son enjoy this particular school or should I send him somewhere else? Will my teenage daughter ever talk to me again like she used to? See, we don't always know what to do at work, how we can get on better with friends, if and when to retire even. See, much of the Christian life is lived trusting in the invisible God when we don't know exactly what God wants us to do. We trust in him We make decisions in keeping with his word. But that means that often we don't quite know what exactly the right thing is to do. And we're going to see in the coming weeks that is the situation Esther finds herself in. See, the world Esther lives in has a lot of similarities to the world we live in today, but it might not look like it at first. Let me just set the scene for the book of Esther. It's set near the end of Old Testament history. And God's people, the people of Israel, are now scattered across the Persian Empire. See, the beginning of Old Testament history, God called a man called Abram and promised him that his descendants, the Israelites, would live as God's people in the land that God would give to them. And about 400 years after Abraham, a leader called Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land of Canaan. God had rescued his people and gathered them into his land just as he had promised. But sadly, right the way through the Old Testament, again and again in Israel's history, the people of Israel treated the God who had rescued them 
and he'd save them with contempt. First under the rule of judges, then under the rule of kings, Israel repeatedly rejected God. They rejected God's ways and worshipped the gods that the other nations worshipped. And God warned them again and again through the prophets that if they didn't return to him, he would punish them for that. But again, all the way through the Old Testament, the people of Israel do not believe God. They don't believe he's going to punish them. And so they keep on living as if God was completely unimportant. So God did punish them. He divided them into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria and was never really heard of. Again, that's the lost tribes of Israel. Carried off into exile, we don't know what happened to them. The two tribes that made up Judah in the south lasted a little longer, but they too were conquered and carried off into exile, this time by the Babylonians. See, the people of Judah, now called Jews, were now forced to live away from the land that God had called them to and to adapt to life as subjects of a pagan emperor. And in time, the Babylon Empire was itself conquered and taken over by the Persian Empire. And it's the Persians who are ruling during the time of Esther. So the world that Esther lives in is a world where the God of Israel is not acknowledged or worshipped. It's a world where God was invisible. And this book records a time when Esther and her uncle Mordecai were called to trust in God when the entire Jewish people were threatened with extinction. We're going to be seeing that in the coming weeks. See, Esther lived in a world where she couldn't see God. And that is the world that Christians are called to live in every day of our lives. After the time of Esther, God's people no longer live in one place or one land today. The New Testament tells us that God's people are now those who have faith in Christ, that Christians are the true descendants of Abraham. And the Christian church is scattered right across the world in every nation, tribe, people and language. And the vast majority of Christians, including Christians in the West, are forced to live in a godless world, in a world where God is left out. And the challenge Esther faced is a challenge every Christian faces every day. How can I be faithful to God today in a world that leaves him out, that ignores him? You see, presidents and prime ministers might go to church sometimes. Church leaders might make bold claims that we live in a Christian country. But the reality is that the modern world actively and deliberately ignores God in its decision-making and in its day-to-day life. It ignores God in schools, in the workplace, in the area of relationships and marriage and children. So the issues that Esther faces in this book are actually very similar to the issues we face today. How can I be faithful to the living but invisible God? And perhaps more importantly, is God still able to work in a world that ignores him and rejects him? And I hope we're going to see over the coming weeks that even when God is invisible, his purposes cannot be stopped. See, God is at work in this world and in the lives of his people even when we cannot see it. And that's the message of Esther for us today. So turn to chapter 1 then. 
What does this tell us about the world that Esther lived in? And what can we learn from that world about our own world? We don't meet Esther in this chapter. You probably picked up on that. We don't meet them until chapter 2. What chapter 1 does do is set the scene for their arrival. See, the writer of Esther wants to place this story in history. And he wants to show us just how dangerous a world it is that Esther is about to enter. And first of all, we can see in this chapter, in verses 1 to 9, that the world of the Persian Empire and the Persian court is an impressive world. Just look back over those opening verses again. See, we're introduced here to the Persian king Xerxes, and we're left in no doubt that this king is powerful. See, under Xerxes, the Persian Empire is at its peak. His empire stretched across 127 provinces, from India to Kush. That's in verse 1. And that is from modern-day Pakistan to northern Sudan in Africa. See, that is a huge kingdom. And the writer makes it clear there are very few places in the known world in his day that Xerxes didn't rule over. And the capital of Xerxes' vast empire was the citadel of Susa, verse 2. And the book of Esther opens with a detailed description of a grand banquet Xerxes gave for all his nobles and officials. And the picture here is one of vast wealth and power, of a king who isn't afraid of anyone, and he wants to show that to his subjects. Look down at verse 4. For a full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. See, it took Xerxes that long for him to be satisfied that his nobles and officials had got the picture. 180 days. That is how powerful this king is. And then verse 5 tells us, after that period of time, Xerxes called for another banquet to be held, this time for all the people in Susa, from the least to the greatest. And the descriptions of that banquet, of the king's furniture and of the free-flowing wine, are extremely detailed. See, we're left in no doubt this is an extravagant feast. This king is powerful, his empire is huge. And from these opening verses, you could also say he's extremely generous. So look down at verses 7 to 8 again. These tell us there was plenty of wine for the people in this banquet, and that everyone was allowed to drink in his own way. See, if we stopped at verse 8 of chapter 1, we might come away thinking that Xerxes was a great king. He's powerful, he's impressive, and he's also very generous to his subjects. He uses his power to give them a lot. So you might think the Jews would be happy to live under such a powerful and generous ruler. And our first impressions of Xerxes have a lot in common with the first impressions we might have of the world we live in today. We too live in an impressive world. See, the trappings of power might have changed, but the world we live in seems to offer its subjects just as much as Xerxes did. If you play by the rules, the world tells us, you can have it all. We're presented with the business tycoon, with his fleet of cars and vast property. We look on as political leaders can seem to change the course of history with their very words. We read about groups of footballers' wives and girlfriends who can enjoy all the benefits of unlimited wealth with huge credit card bills racked up on shopping sprees and night sights. So you look back at Xerxes' wealth and power in Esther 1 and you find not much has changed. 
The world we live in also has its power and its wealth. And at first glance, it too seems very generous. We're promised happiness, fulfilment, contentment, if we play by the world's rules. Women are told they too can have the body of a celebrity if they just follow the latest diet or have the same hairstyle or wear the same clothes. Men are told if they work hard, they too can have the latest gadget, the latest car, the latest woman on their arm. See, if we work hard, the world tells us, we can have it all. Money, success, love, even fame if we're willing to go on TV for it. See, the world we live in offers us so much. You're not fulfilled by your job? Then get another job. There's plenty out there. You're not fulfilled by your friends? Well, then get new friends. There's plenty of them out there. You're not fulfilled by your marriage? Well, then get a new partner. There's plenty of them out there. See, the world tells us that we deserve to be happy. And it tells us that it can make us happy. And where's God in all of this? Well, just as in Xerxes' court, God is completely invisible. God is left entirely out of the picture. Even when we think about spiritual matters today, often it's just about our own fulfilment rather than ever knowing God himself. See, like Esther and her fellow Jews living in Persia, Christians today live in a powerful world, an impressive world, and a world that at first glance looks very generous to us. It's only when we take a second glance that we begin to see the problems. Just read verses 10 to 12 of Esther 1. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. See, here we see that King Xerxes' generosity is short-lived when others don't play by his rules. In high spirits from wine, Xerxes wants to parade his Queen Vashti in front of his guests. Verse 11 tells us she was lovely to look at. No big surprises there. Again, a king like Xerxes is going to choose a beautiful wife for himself. But Queen Vashti refuses to come. She refuses to play by Xerxes' rules and be treated in the same way as Xerxes' garden hangings and couches and goblets. She refuses to be just another part of Xerxes' display of power. And Xerxes is furious at her. See, what Xerxes' anger shows us is that in spite of the appearance of generosity, Xerxes is actually a deeply vain man and he rules over a vain world. See, Vashti's refusal to obey her husband here exposes the limits of Xerxes' power. He may portray himself as an all-powerful ruler, but he isn't. Vashti's refusal to obey him is proof of that. Now, some commentators over the years have criticised Vashti for being proud herself or for humiliating her husband in public. But I think they're missing the point. The writer of Esther wants us to see Xerxes humiliated. 
He wants us to see the limits of Xerxes' power and he wants us to see Xerxes taken down a peg or two. You see, imagine for a moment that you're a Jew living in exile in Persia. You've never seen your homeland of Judah. You were born in exile. You lived your whole life in exile. And when you see the wealth and power of your Persian rulers, you might be tempted to thinking they really are all-powerful. They really can take care of you far more than the God of Israel. See, after all, the Persian king looks so impressive in the opening verses here. But can you see now just how important it was for the original Jewish readers of Esther to see Xerxes cut down to size? Without reading about how Vashti humiliated him, they could have gone on thinking their Persian rulers were far more powerful than the God of Israel. But by reading Esther 1, the Jews were helped to see through the outward appearance of power and wealth and to see the foolish pride and vanity of their rulers instead. See, then they'd be encouraged to put their trust in the God of Israel rather than in a vain human ruler. And just as the writer of Esther helps his original readers to see through the power of Xerxes and to see the limits of his power. So this book challenges Christians today to see through the image that our world projects of itself and to recognise just how futile and foolish it is to put our trust in the world rather than in the Lord. See, the world's power isn't completely bogus. Just as Xerxes clearly was powerful, we too live in a world where there are great advances to enjoy. Advances in medicine, in lifestyle. In many ways, we are better off than previous generations. But God's Word challenges us not to accept this world at face value. Instead, we need to see through it and to ask God to help us see the world as He sees it. See, living for the world and therefore ignoring or sidelining God is not as wonderful as the world wants us to believe. In fact, the Bible tells us that life without God is meaningless and only leads to despair. And we don't have to look too far to recognise the truth of that. Political leaders who at first seem so powerful actually often live in fear that their power will be taken away from them, just as Xerxes does. Behind a businessman's impressive salary and perks is often a neglected family, a cold marriage, and again a sense of anxiety that suddenly all of it's going to just go away. The celebrity's fantastic figure often has only come about because of starving herself and covers a real sense of self-loathing. And then we don't have to look out at other people. We can look at our own hearts. Are we happy with what the world offers us? Do money and sex and leisure activities really satisfy us deep down? Is this world really able to fulfill all its promises? Can this world make me happy? See, if you're a Christian here today, the challenge of Esther 1 is don't believe the hype. Don't believe the world when it tells you that it has the keys to happiness because it doesn't. Only a relationship with the living God through his son Jesus can actually satisfy us. Only a relationship with God who has made us and who has rescued us can give us meaning 
and joy and peace. And what about the promises of the world? Well, we're called to see through them. And more than that, we're actually also encouraged to laugh at them. And that's actually a quite striking thing in this chapter. Again, looking at verses 13 to 22. I mean, sometimes as Christians, we become far too serious. And we can perhaps feel uncomfortable that we're told that some bits of the Bible are actually meant to make us laugh. But I want to suggest to you that Esther chapter 1 is intended not only to help us see through the world, it also is meant to make us laugh at it. See, in verses 13 to 22, we're treated to a scene in which the all-powerful King Xerxes, his pride wounded by his wife Vashti's refusal to obey him, calls all his advisors and wise men to help him know what to do about it. See, this all-powerful king is actually completely lost when things don't go his own way. His advisors reassure him that he's not the only husband who has to cope with a difficult wife. They too have had this problem. And they're sure that every other husband in the Persian Empire has too. Their advice then is to strip Vashti of her title and make an example of her so that wives everywhere will hear about what she's done and they will therefore decide to obey their own husbands. Xerxes follows their advice and in so doing humiliates himself even further by telling every single province he rules over that his wife doesn't obey him. He announces it to the hilltops in every different language of his empire. The end of Esther 1 tells us it's sent to every province in its own language. See, by attempting to restore his pride, Xerxes succeeds in telling all his subjects just what little control he actually has. See, I think the original Jewish readers of Esther were being called upon to laugh at the vanity of their emperor. And Christians today should laugh at the boasting and vanity of our world as well. See, there are deeply saddening things about a godless world. But often, I think, we can take our world a bit too seriously. We are scared of our world. We're scared that maybe it's right. Maybe God isn't really that powerful. Maybe the world does have all the answers. But the God of the Bible doesn't worry about that. In fact, the God of the Bible laughs at this world. Psalm 2 reminds us of that. It says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? Down a bit. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, God laughs here at the pride of these kings who believe they can oppose him and live without him. He laughs because he knows he has nothing to fear about them. And God encourages us to laugh because we know we have nothing to fear from the worlds we live in. See, I heard a pastor once who would watch TV with his young daughter and he would actually laugh at the adverts while sitting with her. He basically would sit with his young daughter and when a soft drink commercial would come on promising you'd be really popular and sexually attractive if you drink their soft drink, he would just laugh at it because it was ridiculous. It was a bogus promise. His daughter didn't have to believe that. See, he was teaching his daughter to laugh at what the world promises us. If a car, if a perfume, if a breakfast cereal offers us happiness and contentment, then it's right for us to laugh at it. 
And in fact, we should laugh at it and we should teach our children to laugh at it because by doing so, we are seeing through the lies the world tells us about itself. See, if you're a Christian, you need to see through this world to see its hollowness, to see its emptiness without God. You need to train yourself to recognise the world's pride and the world's vanity in thinking it can live without God and its willingness to worship anything other than God, whether it's money or sex or romantic love or family or success. See, the Bible tells us again and again, this world is not worth comparing with the kingdom of God when it's going to be revealed. Because only God can give us what we really need. Forgiveness, acceptance, and a loving relationship with him through Jesus. See, we need to think Christianly when we read the newspaper, when we watch TV, when we listen to music. We need to see through the way the world portrays itself and to see its emptiness without God. See, again, Esther 1 tells us it's right for us to laugh at some of the pride and self-importance of the world we live in, just as Esther laughs at King Xerxes. But again, I think we all know as well, it is also right for us to weep over this world. And Xerxes is a comical figure in chapter 1, but he's also a very dangerous figure, a deadly figure, who's got the power to kill and execute people who do not obey him. And as a Christian, we need to mourn over the fact that this world has such great power and hold over so many people. And the only reason a Christian is anything different is because Jesus has graciously opened our eyes and given us life. See, in Psalm 2, the same God who laughs at the world also sends his beloved Son into the world to rescue it and transform it. And we're going to be remembering God's compassion in sending Jesus in a moment in communion. But as we finish, what can we learn from Esther chapter 1? See, there are challenges here for Christians today. And there are challenges here for those who might not be Christians here this morning. The challenge for both is much the same, actually. The challenge for you, if you're not a Christian, is see through the world. Recognize its limits and its emptiness. The emptiness of life without God. And look to Jesus to find meaning and true life. And the challenge for the Christian is the same. See through this world. Don't be scared by it or defeated by it. Recognize that God's kingdom will overcome it and that Jesus already reigns over this world and one day he'll return to establish his rule so that everyone will see it. See, Esther 1 challenges us to live for God in a proud and self-deceiving world that tries to live without him. And it challenges us to ask God to use us to rescue people from this world by bringing them into relationship with him. That is why God sent his son into the world. And that's our calling, all of us. So, at the end of Esther, chapter 1, Vashti is removed from power and the stage is set for Esther to appear. She's about to enter a very dangerous world. A messy world where God is invisible. 
where it can be difficult to know what the right thing to do is, how best to live for God in that world. She's entering a world very much like our world. But God will use her in that world for his purposes. God has worked through Xerxes' pride and vanity to open the way for Esther. And even in this chapter, the invisible God is at work. And this book is going to show us that he can be trusted with our whole lives. Let's just pray together.